take your Bibles and go to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. While you're turning there, I'll reveal something of myself. I was telling Teresa in the song service, I don't think she's even heard this story. That tells you how I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed to tell it, but it sure makes the point I want to get to today. So uh, I, uh, when I was a kid, I really enjoyed sports, still do. Uh, now I enjoy watching them more than playing them, but that's a whole other story. Uh, but I used to, if I couldn't find anybody to uh, join me in doing some kind of neighborhood sports type stuff, I'd go out in the backyard, I'd make up my own games. And so as a kid and living in Central Texas, one of the things that I would do is uh, every once in a while, I'd go out in the backyard, and we had a big backyard, and I would take one of these little plastic footballs, you know, the kind that cheerleaders throw into the, I don't know if they still do that or not, throw up in the stands, which means cheerleaders are throwing them, it goes like in the second row, it's, Um, Somehow I got one of those. (laughs) And uh, I would go in the backyard and I would make up these games in my head. And I would take and start on one side of the yard and I would throw it up as high as I could throw it and then run under it and catch it. And the game was to throw it as far as I could and still be able to run under it and catch it. And uh, so I'd, I'd go out and I'd amuse myself for hours with that kind of stuff. Well, one day, and I was young enough that uh, wasn't all that tall and uh, so I started playing that and I took that ball and I threw it as far as I could and I was running under it and went to catch it like this and just as I stuck my arms out I hit the four foot chain link fence that we have and just smacked right across my throat now I had forgotten that we had a fence around our yard and I, I vividly remember not hitting it but I remember as I stumbled into the house and my mother freaking out about what was going on with me. And I couldn't talk because it hit me in the throat. Uh, I want to use that image to talk about being blindsided. You understand the term blindsided? Now, that's not technically, you know, for football players, an ear hole shot. Uh, but it's kind of like that. It was out there. I didn't realize it was out there until I hit it. And all of a sudden, I got to deal with the reality of a fence. That's what I want you to get as we start off here. Because sometimes... In Scripture, we come to passages that blindside us. We expect one thing, or maybe we expect nothing, and out of nowhere, this fence occurs, and we smack right into it before we know what's happening. Well, today's passage is kind of like that for us. It takes a truth that we hold to be pretty evident in and of itself, and turns it on its heel, turns us on our own heels, maybe better said, And uh, then we just have to deal with it. So in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we're going to work our way through the first seven verses this morning. But here's what I want you to get. This morning, the preacher, and if you're just joining us, let me just kind of remind you that what we've done in the book of Ecclesiastes is we've seen that the one who speaks to us from these pages uh, is labeled the preacher. That's really kind of what Ecclesiastes, the title, means. Well, the preacher pulls a fast one on us in this text today. He gives us something that we really don't expect. As a matter of fact, let me leave you with this question as we begin and let it kind of percolate for a while. When we find ourselves on this chase that we're talking about, and in the video that um, Brian showed us a little while ago, uh, this whole idea came to the surface again for us. We're all worshiping something, that guy said. I've said it this way, we're all chasing 
something, something in life that will help us to kind of lock in and to hold on, what am I about? How do I find meaning in life? How do I make this life make sense? The chase. Well, part of the reality for us seems to be that we find ourselves, and when we find ourselves on the doorsteps of the church, another way of saying when we find ourselves going to God in the midst of our chase, we kind of think that we're home free. We, let me put it this way. I've heard it many times, heard it again this week. You know, preacher, I'm trying to get these people to come to church. Matter of fact, I heard it multiple times this week in a, multi, in a variety of different ways. The idea is that if, if I can just get to church, things are going to be all right. Or if I can get my friends to church, it's going to fix their problems. So kind of underneath that is this kind of a thought, I guess, a belief that says at the doorsteps of the church, we're home free. We come to the end of our chase when we come to church. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes blindsides us with that thinking. He brings another truth to the forefront, and so let's look at it. Because he says to us, not necessarily. When your chase leads you to church, are you home free? He says, no, not necessarily. Let's talk about this. So here's the first thing I want you to get. We're going to be in verse 1, obviously. That's where we're going to start. Here's the truth of it before I even get to it. There's a principle in the first part of verse 1 that we got to get this morning. Watch your step. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now, I'm going to stop there for a second. Let's talk about that before we go any further. Because what he says after that uh, is kind of like it hangs underneath this umbrella. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now, that's not what we expect. We expect, I made it to church, everything's cool. Or I finally made it here, and so I can relax into it. And he says, not necessarily question I rose uh, in the title of this message and actually brought it up yesterday on Facebook. Some of you helped me out and you kind of answered to it. And uh, I didn't see anything in there that I disagreed with. The question is, are you ready for church? Now, our answers to that are along a spectrum usually. If I ask you this morning, are you ready for church? Well, it doesn't mean as much if I ask you right now as if I asked you at 7 o'clock this morning. Because if I asked you at 7 o'clock this morning, some of you would say, look at me, I'm in my robe and slippers. Or you would say, I'm not ready for church. I haven't had my first pot of coffee yet. Now, I threw this out there yesterday, and several people responded, and I like the responses because it captures us. Are you ready for church? And one of the prevailing responses that I've gotten through the years to that question is, it's, it's tied to an emotional kind of a thing. It's, it's tied to the community that I talked about in my prayer this morning and other places. Uh, we're created for community. And so when we think of going to church, I'm ready because I really want to see some of my friends or I really want to renew my relationships with people. So I'm, yeah, preacher, I'm ready to go. Now, it had a different connotation for me when I was a kid. Uh, I look out across our church family, uh, this congregation, and I see families with young children. I can remember many times my mother from the other side of the house yelling out, Mark Daniel, are you ready for church? Now, what do you think she meant? She meant, 
are you physically presentable enough to be seen with me in public? Remember the video that we saw in here a few, a number of weeks ago now about the family, how they're trying to get ready for church and everything's going wrong and they walk in the door and everything's cool, I got it all under control. I'm going to slap my daughter if she doesn't watch that news. Remember that? You don't remember that? You think I'm talking about slapping my daughter now, don't you? Are you ready for church? For us, a lot of times that's tied to an emotional feeling, concept, or an intellectual stimulation thing. I want to go and I want to see if surely the preacher could do better this week than he did last week. It all comes together for me in this incident out of my background too. You see, my mother, bless her heart, saint of all saints, she raised me and my older brother and my dad all at once. And um, I don't know about my dad, but my brother and I were a challenge, I'm sure. And um, on one particular day, she was a Sunday school teacher, taught the young adult Sunday school class. And uh, my brother my brother was a senior in high school, and I was a sophomore in high school. So mom and dad would go on to work. Dad was a pastor, you know. So they would go on to the church, and my brother and I would follow later once we got ready for church. And uh, on this particular day, something happened. I think, you know, some major thing happened that set us against one another, me and my brother. I suppose he was breathing or something like that, and that kind of got to me. And so uh, we started an argument on the way to church that stretched into the actual getting out of the car to go into church. And by the time we pulled into the parking lot, uh, it was heated to say the least. Now, my brother's bigger than me, a lot meaner than me, and so I was always really careful about how I took my shots at him. So when he's driving a car, it's a good time for me to just unload on him because I knew he couldn't do anything to me. The problem with that theory is that sooner or later, that car has to stop. Well, this car, he you know, spun into the parking lot. Now, by the way, as all of this is happening... My mother is upstairs in the Sunday school building of our church looking out the window across the parking lot, and she sees my brother come tearing into the parking lot. Now, whatever else you want to say about my mother, she knew how to get right on top of a situation like that. So the picture then shifts from him pulling into the parking lot to me throwing the door open, running around the car, and as he's getting out of the car, I start kicking him. Now, now he's mad. I mean, like he was mad before, but now that we're actually hitting one another or kicking in this case, all the stops are out. But here's the problem with this scenario. My mother sees it from upstairs. So now the hitting's going to be being done by somebody else other than he and I in this situation. And so she comes down the stairs, and he and I are going at it, yelling at one another, we're ready for church. And she comes downstairs. She comes over to where we are. And in great spiritual wisdom, she says, you boys go home and we'll deal with y'all when we get through with church. Now, in my family, we knew what that meant. There was going to be a funeral that afternoon. <laughs> but I want you to get the wisdom of that. My mother knew with that that the state of mind that, and the emotions that my brother and I were both in at that moment, neither one of us were ready for church. And we were going to take that poison into a classroom full of teenagers. 
Now, we knew that we were in trouble. I'm sure I didn't get the message then like I get it now. Now I relate to my mom and I wonder with all of my head, I wonder how in the world did she go from that to being able to teach a Sunday school class of young adult, young family parents. You know what my answer to that to myself is? She was ready for church. I want you to think about the question again. Are you ready for church? Our tendency is to reduce church to just another element in our schedule. And the problem with that is that when we're on this chase that I've been talking about, and all of us are on it, that we somehow convince ourselves that if I can just get to church, things are going to be better. The writer of the book of Ecclesiastes says, not so fast. Again, the words here, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. That challenges us because for the most part, we don't like to believe that there's a wrong way to go to church, but that's what's implied here. Why should you guard your steps if you're not being careful about going in the wrong way? It's a significant statement that he has for us in all of this. So while we think in our minds showing up at church is the right and the last step in our chase, he kind of coaches us out of that and helps us to see. And so he blindsides us. We think that that's the answer to all answers, and he says, well, there's more to it than that. So apparently, we can be wrong in how we go to church. So the question, are you ready for church, is more than an emotional connection or an intellectual stimulation or even a relationship-oriented thing at least on this level of relationship, it comes down to the vertical relationship. Are you ready for church? He says, guard your steps. The idea is caution. Like the guy on Fox News, caution. You're about to enter a no-spin zone. You know what that means to me? It means this guy's pompous. He thinks that he's the guy who has all the answers. Well, maybe not necessarily that. Let me tell you what the word really points to. When Teresa and I had the opportunity to go to Israel a couple of years ago now, uh, we went to the further northernmost part of the country of Israel, up in the highlands. It's the beautiful part of Israel. It's, you know, hills. They call them mountains. They're hills. Uh, and lush and fertile and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and extremely dangerous. Because it's the border with Syria. If you watch the news for very long at all these days, you'll recognize that Israel and Syria are not really good friends. As a matter of fact, Israel bombed some Syrian stuff over the last week or so. Uh, This is dangerous territory. And we found ourselves up on the border, which just a few days before we got there, some of the Syrians had been lobbing some of those rockets over into the very neighborhoods in which we were driving and you know, that's kind of the picture, but they took us beyond that town way up into the highlands, uh, and it was the site of a Israeli national monument that goes back to the Six-Day War, when, among other things, a Syrian tank brigade came across from the north and invaded Israel in that area that we were talking about, and it's up high enough in some of those high rolling plains, uh, and you can see forever up there, and it was those plains where we were standing that hosted one of the greatest tank battles in Israeli history. And a handful of Israeli soldiers with their tanks held off the Syrian army, and so it's a national monument for them. 
And we stood up there at one of these burned-out tanks with the big old hole in it where one of those rockets had gone through it, and we looked just across, and from here to the back of the, of the auditorium was a line of stakes in the ground. Not a fence necessarily, just a line of sta- uh, stakes that were in the ground, and they had signs on them. And I could see that part of it was in English, part of it was in Hebrew, couldn't make it out, and so I asked our guard, what is it with the signs out there? And he said, those are signs that let you know that to this day, there are still anti-tank mines on that ground. So don't make the mistake of walking out there. I thought, not a problem for me. That's the word picture that he starts off with. We don't think about church that way. When you go to the house of God, you ought to be able to open yourself up. I've said that, preach from the pulpit, that this needs to be a refuge for us as a people. We don't need to come in here and be hacking on one another. It needs to be a safe place for us. But he says, be careful when you go to the house of God. Well, maybe we should figure out what he means by that. Because if we're not careful, we could just hear that and say, well, good enough for me. That's the excuse I needed not ever to go back to church again. It's not what he means. So let's see what he says. Here's the principle. Be careful. Be on guard. Watch your step. It implies that it's possible for us to be wrong in coming to church in the way we come. So how do we get it wrong? Verses 1, the latter part of verse 1, all the way through verse 6, help us out with this. There's two basic points here. I'm going to give them to you negatively, and at the end of it, I'll give them to you positively. How do we go wrong? Why should we guard our steps when we go to the house of God? Here's the first one. We are not ready for church if we're in a mouthy mood. You understand mouthy mood? Hello, are you there? Okay, what is mouthy mood? Well, let's try this on. Remember over in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is about to teach on prayer. Uh, You know, our Father, the one in heaven, remember I preached through all that. But before he gets to the how to pray, he spends a little time on the how not to pray. And he starts off by saying, don't be like the Gentiles or the, the other ones, the non-spiritual ones, we might say, the outsiders, we would say. Don't be like those people because they think with all of their words and all of their flowery language that somehow they're going to bend God's will to their own. He said, don't be like that. Go into a closet and pray, just you and God, where it's just he and you together. In other words, it's a private thing, okay? That's the picture as we come backwards into Ecclesiastes. He says, don't be mouthy when you come to church. And some of you are sitting out there going, preacher, you should hear that. You should shut your mouth about now. Let's read. Second part of verse 1. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Interesting term there, sacrifice of fools. Hebrew scholars basically say, we don't know what he means by that. What is a sacrifice of fools? I'll come back to that in just a second. uh, To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. That is the key phrase of the entire passage today. It is a statement that he says, remember this, realize this. You're not God. I don't like hearing that. Because I 
tend to think that I'd be a pretty good God if I just had just half a chance. Don't you think that of your life? Well, the informed of us say, no, we know better than that. But the practical side of the world in which we live says, if I could just be God, I'd fix all of this stuff. Well, or I would ignore what I don't want to have to mess with, and I'd fix my stuff. The problem is you start trying to fix your stuff, you realize right away you don't have what it takes to fix your stuff, much less somebody else's stuff. The writer of Ecclesiastes boils it down to this nugget for us. Remember, God is God, and you're not. We're going to come back to that in just a second. Let me keep reading now. He says, based on that, therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. The picture here is that we get so wrapped up in the business of our lives, okay, the chase, the things that we apply ourselves to so diligently, we just jump into and it becomes what we are known for, at least in our own minds. Those things have a way of bleeding into our dreams at night. Happened to me last night. I went to bed thinking about all the stuff I had to do today. And then that stretches past today into the next couple of days. And I started thinking, how am I going to work all of this stuff into one thing? And somewhere in that thought process, I drifted off to sleep. And through the night, I kept dreaming about work stuff. And I would wake up just enough to go, wow, that fits my sermon. And I'm out again. Isn't that how it is? When you get so focused on something, it's hard to let it go. And it just kind of invades our thinking, even at night. He says that picture is the picture of this person who is so mouthy in their worship experience, they never take the time to listen to God that all they have now is this sacrifice of fools. All they have to bring to God is their own words. Basically what he's saying is you give a person who's mouthy long enough to talk and they'll show you just how foolish they are. Because somewhere in the midst of that, they're going to let it be known that they think they're God. Never lose sight of the otherness of God. He's not your buddy sitting next to you. Now, I know I'm pretty good on the theology of this. I recognize the Holy Spirit indwells us. God loves us. He pulls us. We love that part of God. But we have to understand that the only reason that we even know who God is is because in his grace, he said, I want to reveal myself to you. I, he says, I am who you need for your life. But you see, this person, the mouthy one, comes to church and it's all filling all of the spaces of our lives with words. And there's never the opportunity to sit back and say, okay, I'm going to not be God for long enough to listen to what God might have to say to me today. Sacrifice of fools, that's a loaded term, I think. So here's the positive statement, okay? Ready for church means that you are predisposed to listen to what he has to say. Let me just stop for a minute and let this sink in pretty, pretty well for us. How much time do you spend in a typical week 
withdrawing from everything so you can listen to God. I didn't say pray because I happen to believe that one of the greatest uh, points that modern church people miss about prayer uh, or that miss about relationship with God is at the point of prayer. Somehow we seem to have convinced ourselves that prayer is about talking to God, but the best prayer you could ever do, you never say a word. You just listen. But it's hard work to listen. It's hard work to shut out the noise. And so we find ourselves filling the spaces with noise. Maybe even radio. I know a lot of us in our church listen to preachers on the radio. I get that. I get that. Don't make the mistake of believing that just because you're taking all of that stuff in means that you're getting who God really is for you. It's a relationship. It's, it's not filling the space with religious stuff. And we help people with that in our worship services. Not just, I'm not talking about here necessarily, just the church in general of our day. We fill it with all kinds of stuff hoping that somebody will take a piece of it home with them. When the best thing we could do is what Brian did with us today is in a strategic way get quiet before a holy God. When you're mouthy, you're not ready for church. Well, let's take another one because it's getting awfully quiet in here. Again, I'll, I'll state it negatively first. Here's the second one. We are not ready for church if we prefer our agenda to God's agenda. This is in verses 4 through 6. He says, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you owe. Now, I'm going to stop here for a second because our tendency is to take this out of context, set it on a shelf, and use it as a principle of living. By the way, it's a good principle. All right. The principle of living where we take it out of context, set it on the shelf, is if you make a bill, pay the bill. Okay, I know that that doesn't seem like a popular thing to say in our world these days. Our government doesn't seem to be all that interested in doing those kind of things. But that's a whole other sermon, I'm pretty sure. If you make a vow, pay the vow. We put it this way. If you go down to the bank or the credit union or your sugar daddy, and you say, hey, I need a new car. And they say to you, it's going to cost you X number of dollars. We will loan you the money, and you don't have to pay it back. By the way, if your bank says that, I'm moving to your bank, so please be sure and let me know who it is. That's not what they do, is it? If you say, I'm going to borrow the money, they make you say, I promise to pay it back. But they don't believe you. Okay? They don't believe you, so they're going to charge you for the money, and they're also going to say, if you don't pay it back, we're coming to get something of yours. Right? Right. Okay, that's a vow. That's the picture of the language that's being used here in verses 4 through 6. So, basically what he said in verse 4 is, you better pay it if you make it. Verse 5, it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not repay. In other words, he's saying, if you think there's even a chance that you'd not follow through on it, then don't even make the vow in the first place. If you don't have the capacity to pay it back, don't borrow the money. That's what he's saying. 
except it's not a money thing he's talking about here, as we'll see in just a second. Next verse, verse 6. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. The picture there is the temple messenger. If you go and you say to the, to the guys at the temple, hey, I, I'm making this vow before God. I promise to do such and such. And for them, usually that meant either extra sacrifices or money or whatever. Uh, if you did not follow through with that, they would send somebody to your place of business or house or whatever and get it. I was serving a church. Honest. I hated this. I won't ever do this. Okay? Never say never. I'm saying I won't ever do this. In this particular church, at the beginning of the year, they figured out the budget and they went to every home. They sent a deacon to every home and they said, this is our budget. This is what we believe ought to be your part of the budget. Would you please sign a pledge saying you will give X amount of dollars over the course of the year? And then if you got behind, they would send the same deacon to your house based on these passages saying, you're not up to speed. You need to make sure that you're paying what you pledged. Let me tell you something. You may not want this pastor, but this pastor will never be a part of anything like that, ever. But apparently the Jews kind of did some of that. Make a vow. If you don't pay it, they're going to send somebody from the temple to your house to say, uh, you're behind here. That's that verse. He's saying it's better not to make it at all than to make it and not pay it. I'll get to verse 7 in a little bit. Let's uh, dig a little bit on where we are here. Remember the context here. Because as I started this little point, I said we like to take this out and set it on a shelf and then live under that principle. The deal is, though, this is underneath that umbrella of guard your steps when you go to the house of God. So what he's saying to us here is tied to the way we live our lives. Here's basically what he's saying. When it comes to your relationship with God, do not play, let's make a deal with God. Now here's how that tends to work. Sometimes for us in our day-to-day lives, we make these kind of deals with God. Now God, you know, I have need, see I picked on boats a while ago. What is it? Uh, what could I pick on the women? Nah, I'll just pick on the men. Uh, God, we say to God, you know, God, I need this truck. I've been a Sunday school teacher for 30 years. God, I think you ought to give me a truck. And so we bargain. I'll teach another year if you'll give me a truck. Okay, now I've got to be honest with you. I've never heard a guy pray that prayer. All right? But I have sat down with people. Okay, I've been people who look at our long service with God and our history with him and we come to those conclusions and say, you know, God, you promised to bless me. And look at all the stuff I've done for you. So I really ought to have that, whatever that happens to be for you. And if it's not there, then we take the next step. Well, how about if I'll do this, let me just boil it right down to the bottom shelf. A lot of times preachers will, will stand in front of God's people like this and say this, you should tithe. And some of you are going, oh, I knew he was going to get to that tithe thing. I knew he had to have. Because preachers love this sermon, the tithing one I'm talking about. And preachers stand in front of church, God's people, and they say, you should tithe. But preachers are smart enough to know that 90% of the people really don't want to hear that sermon. 
So we go to verses like in Malachi that says, test the Lord. Now, what's the test here? And see, and he will bless you. Now, by the way, that verse is what it is, okay? Can't deny it. I'm not trying to deny it. I'm just trying to see how we play games with it. So we kind of hold out this deal that if you will give God your money, he'll bless you. So we've taken it off of an obedience thing into a bargaining thing with God. And so, I, you know, here I'm sitting out there going, I got a $20 bill. <laughs> uh, it's my 20. I've been holding that 20 for like 20 minutes. I've had it a long time. And now this preacher's telling me to get it. But God says he'll bless me and say, okay, God, I'm going to... I'm going to throw it into the plate. Where's my blessing? That's a vow. If we reduce that to that level, we are saying, God, I will do this for you, but I expect you to do my will now. We buy God off is what we think. This is not a message on giving, by the way. I'll just say this and move on. What you do with your money is a keen indicator of how you view God. That's just for what it's worth. Now, in that scenario, he says it's better not to vow at all than to vow and not pay. We tend to negotiate with God, to bargain with God, and that's the picture here. To go before God and say, God, I want you to do my work. And if you'll do that, then this is what I'll do for you. Now, the problem, that, among other things, one of the problems with that is we tend to bargain with God about the very chase that we're on in the meantime that leads us away from him rather than to him. So God, I'm looking for meaning in life and prosperity and all that in my job and I'm going to find my identity in my job. So if you'll just give me this promotion, I'll go to church every Sunday next year. And so we say, here's my chase, God, please bless it rather than him being the object of our chase in the first place. Remember, he is in heaven and you're on earth. Ooh, these are tough words. These are tough words for an American Christianity that says, if you can dream it, God will give it to you if you just believe enough. Biblically, theologically, that's baloney. He is in heaven and we're on earth. We've got to be careful with these kinds of things, I think. Let me just jump to the end. I'm out of time. So what does it mean to be ready for church? First of all, it means that we are predisposed to listen to what God has to say. Understanding that it may very well not be what we wanted to hear. After all, the preacher might talk about tithing that day. We're predisposed to listen. Secondly, Ready for church means that we embrace God's agenda and abandon our own. I told you last week I like certain sports television stuff. You know, I talked about the Ironman triathlon uh, not too long ago. I uh, also used to like the Tour de France. And, uh, one of the things I liked about the Tour de France is all the knuckleheads who wait on the side of the road to watch a bicycle go whoo, like that. Out there for hours to see one guy go whoo, and he's gone. But what I really like about that, because I'm kind of into church, uh, I love the community that it takes for one rider 
to make it through the Tour de France. He's got a guy in a car who's chasing him with bicycles on top. He's got people on radios talking to him. They've got teammates who are working together and all that kind of stuff. And somewhere in the midst of it, there's this guy who is driving the show. And that's a great picture, I think, for some of us sometimes as we come to the Christian life. We say, we're going to be the one driving the show. I'm the guy on the bicycle. I'm the one who orchestrates all of this stuff. Well, that's how we see God sometimes. We say, okay, God, you're my support team now. My sugar daddy, if you will. I like what Derek Kidner says. He is an Old Testament scholar. Here's what he says about this whole mentality about how we approach God that way. There is no amount of grace that can justify taking liberties with God. In other words, God is in heaven. You're on earth. Are you ready for church? I think when we approach church, when our chase leads us to the steps of God's house, we should assume the position of surrender because he's God and I'm not. Are you ready for church? It's over. Let's pray. Father, we come again laid bare and vulnerable by the truth of your word. We ask that you forgive us for those times that we think it normal to come waltzing into church and never once give thought to how other you are than us. We try to work up worship when in reality it is the natural result of an encounter with the Holy God. So we pray that you would forgive us in great grace. You'd meet us in the midst of all of our mistakes and our polluted thinking and all of our attempts to be God in our own lives that we experience in a fresh way today the love that you showed to us when Jesus came and took on the flesh died on the cross and rose again that we would experience life in consonance and in relationship with our creator that our chase would find us not at the doors of the church but at the throne room of heaven with a holy God. Thank you so much for your love. Do your thing with us now is our prayer in Jesus' name.